Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Steve and Cassie here sitting together for the last time. Who would have thought this would be the last time we'd be doing one of these together? The dynamic duo for the last time. Steve, it's been a good run. I've done 26 of the 32 episodes published with you. So thank you for teaching me, motivating me, and pushing me, driving me to be the best. When I came back from maternity leave in August of 2020, you came over to my desk and said, yo, Cass, you're going to be my partner on this podcast thing that I'm putting together. And I said, no way. I will never be on a podcast, much less with you, Steve. You were persistent, very pushy, and here we are three years later. So thank you for being persistent and giving me that opportunity. Good luck to you in your new adventure, and I hope that you're not a stranger. Thank you, Cass. I appreciate that. Yeah, well... I'm going to be leaving, so just so the listeners know, uh, I'll be signing off here for the last time. This is going to be the last episode I'm on. Uh, New opportunities were presented to me that I want to pursue. It's going to be tough to leave the show, leave uh, the hand center. The place has been awesome to me. I love my colleagues, love what I do here. I'm excited for the future, though. Hopefully, I'll get to see some of you out there. I'll be teaching uh, for the Gray Institute out there, some continuing ed. So hopefully, I can run into some of the listeners someday. But I'm excited to be a listener and continue to learn from Cassie and the other hosts. Cassie, can you talk about where the show is going to be going? Who's going to be taking over with you? So a very familiar name to everyone, Ann Pareto-Lurkey is going to be my new co-host, and we're going to try to get other therapists from the Hand Center here involved. So I will be on a few episodes, but Ann's really going to be in the driver's seat um, going forward, and we have some great episodes planned. Um, She has a huge database of uh, very amazing therapists out there um, worldwide. So we have some good ones lined up that are in different countries, and we're going to try to focus on uh, what what kind of experience they've had, what, what kind of um, schooling they have, what is their documentation like, uh, what is their reimbursement like, what kind of splints they make and protocols and so on and so forth. So we're going to tap into different ideas and hopefully uh, change it up a bit. So stay tuned for that in 2024 where we're going to talk to different therapists around the world. Yeah, I'm excited to listen. I mean, just hands got that plethora, that social network. So that's going to be awesome just to listen to that and who knows, maybe this will be my last time as a host. Maybe I'll get to come back on as a guest, maybe. Mm, don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Just pushing for myself there to be on. But um, who would have thought that our last episode with Nora Barrett, who came to the clinic and she taught a wound care course here, I think it was in April, because I was unable to attend because I was teaching my first continuing education for the Gray Institute in Chicago that weekend. And that's where you came up with the idea to bring her in. And then we have this amazing conversation with her and I have to leave in the middle of it because I have this like coughing attack. (laughs) So I hope we don't hear too much of me coughing out in the hall. I have no idea what happened, but tell our listeners a little bit about Nora. Yeah. For between the coughing and her amazing birds chirping in the background, we'll see what you all hear. But Nora comes to us as a very skilled OT that specializes in wound care from the University of Virginia Physicians Group, and she works there full-time. She's a very special lady that is uh, known worldwide, and she takes her own free time to teach other hand therapists around how to evaluate, um, cleanse, properly dress open wounds, and she's a very pronounced speaker and writer. She is published in the Rehab of the Hand textbooks for any of you studying for the CHT. So Nora gives an excellent approach to treating wounds and provides like that organization of like where to begin with wound care. And her expertise really hit home for us here, Steve, because we see wounds every day, all day long. And it just really puts things in perspective that there's so many different agents to use and what's 
what's not only cheap, easy, but efficient for the, the wound to heal. Yeah, my biggest takeaway was Aquaphor. Oh, yes. Yeah. Aquaphor over everything. Yeah. <laughs> True. Well, we hope you enjoy listening to Nora. And thank you, Steve. Thank Good you. luck to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And for the last time, make sure you guys click on the link in the bio and make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast so that Cassie and Ann and the other therapists can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. We have Cassie and Steve here, and we are welcomed with Nora Barrett from the University of Virginia Physicians Group. After a full day in the clinic, welcome, Nora. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us today. So I first met you at the Milwaukee Hand Experience, and I took your wound class there, and we asked you to, I'm like, oh, I have to have this lady in our podcast. It was such a great class. And um, if you just want to give a little explanation, a little bio about yourself and how you kind of got started in wound care. Sure. So I'm an occupational therapist and I'm a certified hand therapist, but I always had a love for burns. I actually worked in burn units before I was uh, certified as a hand therapist and ended up with some fantastic knowledge of, of wound, of burn, of products that were available. I think I was always super curious about that. And whenever I went back into the hand therapy world in between burn centers, therapists would ask me, you know, what kind of products are available now? And I, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't one of those things that translated from wound or burn worlds to hand therapy worlds. And so I, I became definitely interested in that and then had a fantastic mentoring uh, relationship in a, in a really good team uh, when I worked at the Washington Hospital Center in D.C. We had a physician who led the group um, who was was just a phenomenal mentor and educator and treated every single person on that, on that burn service as, a, as an equal team member. Um, and there I met up with some fantastic therapists and nurse practitioners and physicians and got such a handle on you know, how to assess a wound and what to look for. And then, and then the ever important question, what goes on it? What do you do with it? Um, so basically in 2020, COVID time off, I was working in an outpatient private practice clinic and had some extra time um, when I was just doing telehealth for our, you know, our clinic patients. And I did a wound care certification course. I'd always wanted to do it. Um, and that was kind of a driver because I had time. And since then, I've um, gotten a lot more into obviously speaking about it or um, teaching courses and, and have been doing some writing as well, some book chapters. Um, so it's just kind of taken off from there, but it's a definite passion. Okay, well, great. Well, Nora, we have we were so happy you came in April of this past year to help help our teach our therapists here on wound care and all of the dressings. And it's just so overwhelming when you're first getting into therapy. So maybe we can go over some of those today. I still get overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's super overwhelming. I mean, I can't even keep up with all of the products that are available. And as soon as one product comes out from one company, another one is trying to make a make a similar one and calling it something else. So it, it can be overwhelming for sure. So maybe we can just start with, you know, if you're a new grad, new therapist, or new to just hand therapy in general, and you have your first open wound, where do you begin? Are you looking for smell, color? Um, are you taking measurements right away? Like, uh, where does one begin with an open wound? Sure. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, so basically, the, the first thing I do when I see an open wound is I start asking questions. Because every once in a while, or more often than not, this wound is not brand new. 
um, they've been doing something to it or it's been treated with something. And so that's super important to find out is what is the patient already done? And a, a brief little history too, you know, knowing any sort of con- uh, past medical history, conditions that include anything like venous insufficiency or any sort of cancer or any sort of thing that's going to lower an immune system. And that also includes drugs um, that would either uh, slow blood flow or increase bleeding, anything like that, or or, um, decline or decrease um, immunity. Those types of things will make wounds take longer to heal. Um, So so the first thing I kind of look at is, is 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 it shallow? And can I just put something on it to, to kind of seal it off or is it deep? And if it's deep, now I know I'm looking at a full thickness wound that's going to have to go through healing phases and I am responsible for getting this to close. A healthy individual who's young, who's got a superficial wound, it's going to heal on its own. And that's probably, probably the majority of what comes in the hand clinic. Um, but what ends up coming back or coming to you because it's a problem is typically the deeper wounds in someone who is either not as healthy or who's in a situation where they're not caring for it. Um, so biggest things I'm looking at are, are definitely color. Um, anything that's pink or red is healing and showing you that it's got good oxygen and it's gonna heal. Um, anything that's black or brown or super dried out needs moisture to heal and is gonna be in the way. It's, it's necrotic tissue. It's gonna be in the way of healing and skin can't close when, when any of that debris or dead tissue is in the way. I'm definitely taking measurements the first time because if I don't take a measurement the first time, how do I know if it's healing the next time? The ultimate goal is to get that wound to get smaller and then to close. So if I don't measure it, I don't have any idea. And so one of my favorite um, comparisons is my good friend, um, Becky Nadeski, always talks on flexor tendon injuries. And she always says, if you're not measuring it, it, how do you know what to do? You you don't know how to progress. And, And a wound is exactly the same thing. If I don't have a measurement and then a comparison, at about a weekly basis or, or, you know, if you're seeing someone every two weeks, you have no way of knowing if it's getting smaller. You can tell by color and exudate and all those other things, um, but size and size does matter and the measurements are super, super important in that regard. Um, and then exudate is another big one. You know, is this thing draining and pushing out all kinds of fluid um, or is it, is it pretty, is it dry and it needs moisture or is it just spitting out a little bit? Um, and then what color is that? Is it, is it red and bleeding and a new wound? Cause that's normal. Or is it thick and pus and colored and, and has an odor? Well, that's a problem that's infected. Um, so a, an assessment is super, super key. And I encourage people um, to have like a little kind of cheat sheet or chart in front of them for a new grad, especially, or for a therapist who's newer to wounds, um, that basically goes through the exudate, the type, the amount, how to measure for size, um, and all, and those different characteristics of what we look for, because that will help drive what you need to do and what dressing goes on it. And that's usually the biggest question I get is, I, I'll get a photo or something sent to me and, hey, what should I put on this? So that's probably the biggest question that people have. Do you have an algorithm that you follow when you assess wounds, like a little checkbox, checkoff list? Yeah. So one of my favorite, I guess I don't because it's all in my head, but um, but one of my favorite algorithms to, to teach and to put in lectures and slides is actually an algorithm that's kind of old now. It's actually 10 years old. It's from 2013 and it's from an article um, by Brassard and Powers, and I'm happy to give it to you so you can put it up as a link. Um, but basically, it, it doesn't even include all of the newest materials, but it's it's suitable for a hand therapist, right? A lot of the newer models of um, algorithms, like the one that's in 
the most recent uh, edition of a book I totally go by, which is called Wound Care Essentials. And it's from, I think, 2022. Um, has a really in-depth, involved, next layer, next layer. And that's mostly for those super deep, you know, cavity wounds that have to deal with, you know, in the belly or in the sacrum and that are, you know, in a wound center. So for folks who are hand therapists or in a clinic and an outpatient center and are treating more like post-operative wounds or wounds that aren't healing from an injury, the algorithm that I go by definitely will we'll cover that. And then some of the newer products, most specifically a contact layer that's not included in that can be kind of added in as needed. Okay. So after you get this interview done with the patient and you've kind of made your own assessment, you probably are taking some measurements. Yes. Can you just walk us through what are, what are the, what's the tool you use for measuring, how you document that, and then how do you compare from session to session? Sure. So all you need is, is a little measuring tape. Right, and it, and you don't have it doesn't even have to be um, one that you throw away that's a single use, because you can just hold the measuring tape up to the wound but not touch it. Um, I do obviously clean them after, uh, but you always measure length of the wound, by width of the wound, by depth of the wound. If there is depth, there's not always, and that measurement is always in centimeters. So length in the upper extremity is always the proximal to distal or distal to proximal, same difference. And if the wound is uneven, it's the longest segment of the wound. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the width is always radial ulnar, ulnar radial, same thing, Um, whether it's arm, forearm, or hand. And then same concept. It's always the widest part. So it might be really wide in the center and not as wide. You always go with the largest width. And then depth, if there is one, is the deepest section. And so typically that is a sterile Q-tip with your gloved hand placed into the wound and you're essentially probing downward to the lowest portion at the base of the wound. And then you would kind of pinch that off and measure it against your, your measuring device, your measuring tape, and then you're documenting that depth. So you're basically measuring from the base to where the skin would be, to where that connection would be if the skin was closed and the, and the wound was, was uh, epithelialized. Okay. If you have a really long wound, let's say it's the entire forearm from like your DRUJ to your PRUJ, are you measuring segments of the width or just the widest If it's a part. continuous wound, if it's, a, if it's continuous from the you know, elbow to the wrist, you are measuring the entire length of it at its longest portion. Okay. And then just one width of it. And then one width as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then ideally it's a weekly. If you're seeing them more than once a week, comparing week by week is fine. Uh, anything from basically two to four weeks four week is that kind of magic number where it should be changing length and width, which is basically the the volume of the wound. If that hasn't changed in four weeks, that's an indicator that it's not healing. So you should be seeing changes in a four week period. Okay. We have a clinic camera that we document within the patient's chart from, because there's so many of us, there's like 24 therapists and we have to share amongst us. So we have a clinic camera that we take pictures just so we can see that first day to that second week to that third week. Do you guys do the same at your clinic? We do a lot of photos, a ton of photos that go, we use um, Epic as an electronic medical record. And so photos go into that. 
Um, and then I actually put, I have a, um, a smart phrase that I use within Epic um, that's, I just named wound bed characteristics. And so it goes through all of those dimensions, including size, including exudate type, exudate amount, the colors that are seen in the wound bed, um, so that I could have a comparison. And that so, and, and, and the biggest part, especially with you guys too, with 24 of you in a clinic, so we're all speaking the same language. I think that's the most important part is that if we're not all talking the same or speaking the same language, I don't know what your minimal is to my moderate. Um, so that's why those, those, those are defined terms. Um, for how much, how much, how much exudate did come off on that, on that dressing? And when was the dressing changed last? Because it's going to be really different if it was changed an hour ago before the patient came in, or if it was four days ago, because it's a foam that's been sitting on the patient for four days. So those are little details that have to be included um, that indicate to you, hey, is this improving? Is this healing? Or, oh gosh, this is, you know, no change, or this is way worse. I think that's one of my biggest struggles is not only the documenting, but my the vocabulary, the language and the communication from therapists, just verbalizing about sure. the patient is, sure. you know, the tunneling, the undermining, all that sure. vocabulary. I just, I don't have that skill yet. That's, it's still forming. <laughs> and, it, and it's a work in progress. Um, and that's one of my favorite things to do is just take people through definitions. You know, what do all these different things mean? And, and once you get a handle on that, um, then it becomes a little bit easier to spot because if you don't if you don't know those terms, gosh, how do you describe this? You know, I'll have right. patients send me photos with wound edges curled under and say, "Hey, is this epiboly?" And I'll say, "Yes, yes, that's epiboly. That's when wound edges are curled under." Um, and so the mechanical treatment for that is to literally take that curled under edges and pull it back open. Um, so those are things that we don't see a lot of, but when we do, we say, wait a second, is that? And, and yeah, it, a lot of times it's just someone saying, someone saying yes, you know, giving you, uh, giving you the final answer. And that's, that's a harder thing when there's not a lot of us um, therapists, but becoming more and more who are interested in wounds and who are becoming certified, which is fantastic. Sure. Okay, so there's so many different types of wounds. You could have a K-wire in, you could have sutures, maybe the wound is open and it's gently sutured, burns, skin grafting, and then of course we have those infected wounds. Where do we begin with all of the different types of dressings? Yeah, I, I think, Nora, this would be a good thing to hit on because I remember when I was a student, all, all I ever used and was taught to use was Xeriform. Absolutely. It was like the yellow dressing, here's a Xeriform. <laughs> cover it in some roll of gauze, some tape, and just pray it like was on the next it time works. I saw the patient. Right. And then when I got to my first job, they had stuff that I wasn't familiar with. So I remember like I found Xeroform and I continued to use Xeroform. It wasn't until I came to Wisconsin, it was like I was seeing, you know, I'm, I'm here at a surgery center, so I'm going to see more wounds. I'm going to see more, more post-surgical stuff. So I got introduced to all of these dressings. So I think it'd be awesome if you could speak to what Kathy's asking, like, where, where do we start? What kind of dressings are out there? What should we use? Sure. And, and this might be you, hard for you to organize. So, oh, you know. No worries. It's all good. Yeah. I'll kind of talk through how I, how I approach it. Um, but I will say this. I'm not a Xeriform hater, but it is definitely overused, right? We all, that was our go-to for everything, yes, right? Yes. And I'll never forget. I was on a burn unit in DC and a physician said to me, you know, the, just about anything go on this wound, but not Xeriform. And I, I looked at him and I said, why? You know, and that's when I started to get a true understanding of it can be an answer. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not always the answer. And that's what we were using it as. We were using it as an everything. Um, so Xeriform is, is a bismuth material and it, 
inside of it. It's an impregnated gauze um, that is totally appropriate for skin grafts. It's appropriate for, for donor sites, but a couple things. It's often used, used incorrectly. It's often used with overlaps, like layer upon layer upon layer. If you have a wound that's already wet or showing signs of moisture or maceration, Xeriform is not your answer. It, it, it traps moisture. Um, it also contains um, material in it that is highly allergic, um, that people get allergic to easily, which is also the same for bacitracin, neomycin. It's in kind of in that family. Um, and so we always say if you do use it, which is okay, you never use it more than two weeks because people can develop an allergic reaction to it. And in theory, it is... Um, it, it does contain an antimicrobial. It's, it's material that's designed to try to fight infection. And so if it's a clean wound, in theory, you don't want to use Xeriform because then you lower its risk of being able to fight infection. You build resistance if you're using something like Xeriform first off. So if you need an impregnated gauze that has moisture and traps some moisture because it's a dry wound, Vaseline gauze is an awesome alternative that does not have any sort of antimicrobial component to it that's going to maintain moisture, that will not allow gauze to stick, that can be covered up with gauze or coban, that can go under a splint. But we do have to be careful when making orthotics. If we already have a moist wound and we need a dressing and we need to hold it in place with cotton gauze and we need an orthotic and we need coban to hold it in place, something like a Vaseline gauze or a Xeriform is not appropriate. There's way too much moisture. So in that scenario, something like an adaptic that's an oil emulsion that won't stick is a much better answer. It's just not going to trap as much moisture. Um, so three major kind of questions to, to take yourself through when trying to decide whether or not you're going to, what you're going to put on a wound and, and what you're going to use is, does the wound have necrotic tissue or not? Is, it, is there dead tissue that needs to be removed or is it, is it clean? Um, the next major question is, is it infected? right? Is this wound infected or is it, is it a clean wound? And then finally, the amount of exudate. Is it massively exuding where you need a very high absorber? Um, is it a little bit of exudate? You need something to catch it or is it totally dry and it needs moisture donated? And so those are the three main questions that help me decide what am I going to put on this? And then the other major component of, of it is, is the person, right? Is it on their fingertips? and they need to wash their hands every day because they work on a farm? Or is it on their arm and it's an older person who cannot care for themselves, has no one at home, and, and doesn't want to do that dressing every day, and then maybe they're going to do better with something that stays on for four to seven days? So those are the types of other components, those patient factors that help me decide, okay, is this going to go into something that needs to be changed every day? Or is this going to be be a dressing that's going to be much better suited to stay on for four to seven days until this person comes back into a, you know, into a clinic or into a medical, um, into medical care. So that's, that's my basic way of approaching it. And that's what that algorithm, those three major components of that algorithm from that article in 2013, um, basically decipher. And that's how the algorithm is built is on those three questions. Okay. Could you speak to like, what are some materials that you would use if it was daily dressing changes? What would you, what would you use? Sure. So daily dressing changes, if it's dry and it's superficial and it's going to heal on its own. One of my favorite products in the world is Aquaphor and Vaseline does just fine too. It's a petrolatum base. It's hydrophobic. So it kind of seals off the wound and repels water. Um, it's greasy. 
but it can go under a compression glove. It can go under Coban. It can go under a compression sleeve. Um, so if there's nothing exuding out and you're just worried about something that's almost closed or dry and might, and you're worried about it sticking a little bit, I might just pop some aquaphor on there. But the biggest thing I tell folks is you have to wash it off every day, soap and water, and then apply more. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're trapping potential bacteria in there and then just reapplying it. We all have bacteria on our skin and, and any wound has bacteria in it. Um, the biggest ch challenge is making sure it doesn't overload the immune system and become infected. Um, so, so washing with soap and water is probably the number one thing that people are afraid of and don't do because at some point a patient is told, keep it dry or after sutures or whatever. And then, you know, 10 days later, they come in the clinic and they're, they're bone dry and nothing is healed and they can't figure out why. And nobody and it's, no one's ever told them to wash it with soap and water. Um, I think part of that myth became, um, you know, fruition when deeper, deeper wounds in the wound world, we don't wash those, right? Like big open cavities in the abdomen or in the sacrum from pressure ulcers. We don't wash those. We use saline or we use cleansers to wash those. And I think that's where it came from. But simpler hand wounds or, you know, sutured wounds after the post-op takedown, those are actually appropriate for soap and water washing. Um, so that's one would be aquaphor. I went on a tangent, sorry. Um, others would be, the, for daily dressings, would be your xeroforms, your daptics, um, your Vaseline gauzes. Those are all totally appropriate for daily dressing changes. So that's somebody who has a bit, little bit more of a superficial wound, who is appropriate for soap and water, or who does a job that they might get dirty, they might get sweaty, they might get wet, and someone who's comfortable with changing that dressing out. Okay. And what about what are some of your go-to products if you're comfortable with it staying on for multiple days or maybe, or what circumstances would it be where you'd want it to stay on for multiple days? I know you touched a little bit on that. Sure. So the multiple day ones, um, one of my absolute favorites that I think every hand clinic should have is a contact layer. Um, and that is basically kind of like a silicone based thin clear dressing that's perforated. It basically covers the fragile wound bed. Like that's its job, right? Um, so a couple examples of that would be like a Mepitel by Monleco or Cutacel Contact um, that is an acid, a BSN acid product. And those are designed to go onto the wound and they can actually stay in place, some of them now, for 7 to 14 days. So that's a great option for a clean healing wound that's fragile. It might have a little bit of exudate and it's, the material itself is perforated so a gauze pad can go right over it to collect. Or if it just is fragile and needs to be covered and knocked and no exudate, that contact layer can sit on top of that wound. And then same thing, you can put Coban over it. You can put an Orificast over it. If it's an area of a DIP that you're splinting for or casting for a mallet and you're worried about it opening or rubbing, um, that product can stay in place for that long. It's clear. So you could take an outer dressing off to look at it and see how it's doing or you can just leave it in place. It is actually designed to stay in place that way. So I'll use that a lot for fingertip injuries that I'm not worried about drying out. If there's a little bit too much moisture, I'll use those. And that's also a great product for underneath orthotics or casts because it won't trap too much moisture. It protects the wound. It won't let anything stick to it and it can stay in place. You can also get those products. Contact layers can come um, with antimicrobials. So say silver um, can be included in the antimicrobials. So if you're worried about infection, that can actually stay in place. Um, I might not go seven to 10 days. I might be lean more towards four to seven, but that's another product that can stay in place. If there's exudate, it just depends on the amount. 
and if it's infected. So let's say if it's a minimal amount of exudated and it's not infected, a foam is an awesome option. A foam is absorbent. It can stay in place typically for four to seven days if that exudate you're concerned about infection, if there's redness in the area, there's an odor to it, if there's you know pus or color coming out of it, then you would use a foam with an antimicrobial. If there's a large amount of drainage, right? If we're talking, you are someone. Let's say someone's using a foam, and they're and it's designed for four to seven day use, and they're soiling through it in a day. That's a time where you've got to up your ante and go to a more absorbent product. That's we're going to be using something like an alginate or a hydrofiber, which are much more highly absorptive. Um, and then same thing, those products come either with or without an antimicrobial. So if there's infection with a with a highly draining wound, you're going to use an antimicrobial mixed into an alginate or a hydrofiber, typically silver or a DAC product. Um, DAC is a hydrophobic material that takes microbes and binds it away from the dressing and does not have an allergen component like a silver would. Um, silver for a long time we didn't think had an allergen component and now it can, um, but silver is still extremely effective and a, an extremely effective antimicrobial. And then DAC is this new product um, that is basically being used now in foams um, that can also bind or pull away any of those microbes um, so that you're basically pulling away any, any of that material to not allow the infection to progress. Um, and then if you've got tunneling or undermining, if you've got those scenarios, now we look at is it wet or dry, right? So if you've got a really wet exuding wound with tunneling or undermining, in those scenarios, you need to use an alginate or a hydrofiber and pack that area all the way through into the tunnel, loosely, a loosely packed material. If it's really dry, if a deep wound is really dry, if you have any open space or a tunneling or undermining and it's a dry wound, that's when a hydrogel is going to come into play. And people always want to compare hydrogel and aquaphor. They're very different products. So hydrogel is basically used when you've got space you need to fill in a dry wound or with minimal exudate. Um, it's ideal for exposed tendons and it is amorphous. It's like a jelly. If you put it onto your skin, it would roll off, whereas aquaphor is hydrophobic and it literally just paints on like ointment and stays placed. So hydrogel, which is hydrophilic or donating or absorbing moisture, is more of a regulator. It's a smarter, more intuitive product. It sits in the space. It occupies dead space so that we cannot form infection, right? We cannot form an abscess in that location. And then it does have to be held in place with something. So if it's a dry, deep wound, hydro, uh, hydrogel is the ideal scenario. And then something like a foam, if it's draining a little bit or you need to absorb that moisture, or um, oftentimes if you use a hydrogel, you're not using, it's minimal exudate. So you're not using something like an alginate or a hydrofiber because those would be for more highly draining wounds. Um, so you can also use something like a hydrocolloid as long as you don't have infection and you have zero concern for infection. So if you've got an exposed tendon and a patient who's healthy, there's no chance of infection. Um, hydrogel with a hydrocolloid is a perfectly good example. And that, again, can stay in place typically for about four or five days. Okay. So, Nora, one of the biggest takeaways I took from your class when I saw you in Milwaukee was... K-wires, pins, 
how <laughs> here at the hand center, we usually do like a hydrogen peroxide mix with like a little saline. And then we take that Q-tip and we go around the crusties, get all the ickies off. And then we go to the next one and we're grabbing a new Q-tip and you're like, no, stop, put the brakes on. Do you just want to talk about that a little bit? I'd love to, because that's a hot topic, right? <laughs> and I will say this, like full, you know, full disclosure, there's been several systematic reviews that have come out in the literature and, and there's no great consensus, right? We don't have agreement that this has been shown in literature or in research to, to work, right? We, there's multiple ways of doing things and none of them have shown that they are superior. So what I go by is what was produced by the Wound Care Education Institute, WCEI, and that's who I took my certification from um, when I prepared for, for taking the WCC or Wound Care Certified Exam. And so what they teach is that hydrogen peroxide is, is not effective. Hydrogen peroxide, and this is based in the, on the literature, hydrogen peroxide doesn't have the capacity to kill infection or bad cells, microbes, but it does harm the good cells, right? The macrophages and the fibroblasts that we're trying to heal wounds. So it doesn't help. It doesn't kill bad things, but it does kill good things. So we don't want to use that. Saline is totally appropriate for cleaning around wounds if it's, uh, and pin sites if the, if the skin is clean and healthy. If the skin is not clean and healthy, we actually want to use something like a cleanser, a wound cleanser. So wound cleansers are appropriate when there's debris in the wound, when there is infection, and when you've got, say, a pin site that's really red and swollen and puffy around it and draining fluid. At that time, you'd want to use a cleanser. So you can take something like a liquid cleanser and either spray it on or you can pour some of it into a sterile cup and dip a sterile q-tip in if you know single use only and allow it to dry because the other component of pin care that wcei recommends is to actually keep the pin site dry cover it with dry gauze so i mean no gone are the days of taking little strips of xeroform and wrapping them around the little pins and tying them off the, the, the theory is if we maintain moisture around a pin, that's where things like pseudomonas or moisture-based microbes can grow and travel that pin down to bone. Um, and in that scenario, you know, we're in trouble. Um, so with bone infection or osteomyelitis. Um, so the main proponent is, is to cleanse the pin sites with alcohol, with rubbing alcohol, to cleanse the skin with saline if it's clean, or a cleanser if the skin is showing signs of infection and to keep it dry. Um, the timing of that is daily if it's clean. If you're concerned for infection, if it's starting to get red or suspicious, you do it every eight hours. Um, and then you would use a cleanser. You would use some sort of antimicrobial cleanser. And there's many, many, many on the market. Um, I use one called Anacept, which I really like, but there are so many out there. And the biggest thing I would tell you that also goes along with uh, dressings is always make sure you read to see if there's something that your product is not compatible with. There are certain cleansers that are not compatible with silver. There are certain products that are not compatible with saline. So those are things you've got to look into and make sure that you're not crisscrossing. Um, so I usually try to get something that basically is compatible with whatever we have so that there's no, um, basically no crossover um, that would affect the either, you know, 
create an, a reaction or that would affect the um, how how well that product is going to work. Okay. What about let's say you know you're. I remember one of the first uh, patients I ever had had a really bad wrist fracture, and this was when I was working at my first job, and it was staples. And I remember like not knowing what I needed to do. So I remember like running to the back and calling my manager on the cell phone because we didn't work in the same clinic and being like, what do I cover it up with? What about staples and uh, like sutures? What would you recommend? So for staples and sutures, um, oftentimes if they get really dried out, I will after, as long as it's after post-op takedown, you are okay to wash passing soap and water staples and sutures after 48 hours. So after post-op takedown and after that time frame, you are allowed to wash passing water and soap, no submerging. Um, and if they're dry, I will take a thin layer of Aquaphor and just paint it on there if they're really dry. If it's clear, clean, producing normal fluid, my favorite for that is a contact layer because it can just sit over the top of it. It's going to prevent any gauze or any material from sticking into the fibers of the suture or into the staple. And then it can stay in place for, you know, seven, sometimes to 10 days until those materials like the sutures or the staples come out. So that's actually my favorite product to cover those areas because then you can peel it. You can look through it to see if everything's healing okay. You can also gently peel it back in a contact layer. The beauty of a contact layer is it will adhere to normal intact skin, but not to an open wound staple or suture. So that's the beauty of it. It's actually used widely on pediatric units now. Okay. What about burns? What about them? <laughs> <laughs> well, the door is so, so big there. Um, like let's, let's start with just like a, like no blisters, maybe a superficial, maybe a light, serious drainage coming out. Sure. Uh, what would you put on that? So burns are not super different from from wounds, except that if you've got a much larger burn, you have a significant chance that this person is fighting infection, right? Anytime you've got a larger wound, you have a higher chance of infection. And anytime you have a wound that stays open for a longer time, you have a, you have a definite potential for infection. So back in the day, you know, it was silver sulfadiazine, right? It was sylvidine. But those were daily dressing changes. They had to be showered in between or washed in between, painful. And for a full body burn, it became extremely arduous for nursing to, to deal with those. And so that's truly where a lot of these products were born, um, was, to, was to put that, something on there that could stay in place for four to seven days. Um, so at the last burn unit I worked at, and I worked in L.A. County, I've worked in um, Brigham and Women's in Boston, and I've worked in Washington Hospital Center in D.C., which was the last place. We actually used quite a bit of foam dressings with an antimicrobial in them because they're nonstick. They could be peeled back to look to, to look and see. And most foam dressings will fill with exudate because a burn is more than likely going to, unless it's really, really deep, and that's a different scenario. You would not use a foam on a deep wound. Um, but if it's exuding blisters or not, um, a foam will show you when the fluid is filling, and then you can gently peel it away without harming the skin to, to put a new one on. And so in those scenarios with burn injuries, we won't use something with a border so foams can come with or without borders. We wouldn't use something with a border unless it's a super small injury that 
you then have intact skin around it. So if it's just a small burn on the top of the, on the dorsum of the hand, you could use a foam with a border as long as the border extends beyond the, the, the wound itself. But otherwise we'll do things like take multiple foams without borders and pattern them next to each other for arms or legs or abdomen or even donor sites. We, we really moved towards those types of dressings that did not have to be changed every day because they're much more comfortable. They're much less painful for dressing changes and they take a heck of a lot of, t- heck of a lot of less time. Um, and they were actually do, they do really well in comparison with as far as fighting infection, especially when you have an antimicrobial component to them. Um, we also used a heck of a lot of Aquaphor. We did. As soon as a wound was was closing up and was becoming superficial, we'd go to Aquaphor. And then as soon as a wound was closed, we'd move to just plain old lotion, typically with an anti-itch component, because um, that's a big component of burns is pruritus, which is itchiness. Um, so those are the biggies that we used. If something was deeper um, or needed you know, more specialty care, uh, wound vacs have become a, a large trend in, in burn wounds and preparing the tissue either for grafting or for spontaneous closure um, to, to basically buy time um, to remove exudate with a suction component. Um, a lot of times those sponges that are contained in the vac dressings have an antimicrobial component to it or a silver dressing, um, and it's a closed space, so it's a less risk for infection. So for those deeper wounds, wound vacs were, um, were definitely becoming uh, extremely commonly used. So you touched briefly kind of along the same lines of burns, but like if you have to prepare skin and then you get a skin graft. So if this is a fresh graft and you're doing a post-op visit, what's your go-to dressing for like a brand new fresh skin graft? Yeah. So a brand new fresh skin graft, if it's, it's, you're typically going to get them down. You're going to do a dressing takedown at day three to five. Um, So in that scenario, you 100% 100% want something that's non-adherent. Um, so it could literally be anything from adaptic to a Vaseline gauze or Xeroform to a foam. Um, typically there is exudate and if a graft is sheet, that means it's not perforated. Um, and if it's mesh, that means it's been through a device that that stretches that material and those are going to always exude more because there's little openings or what we call interstices in those skin grafts. And so that's going to produce a lot more exudate. So you definitely want something absorptive, but non-stick. That's probably the number one, the number one thing. So personally, my preference, especially if someone can't get back to me, you know, each day or can't do a dressing on their own would be a foam to absorb whatever's coming out, um, to not stick to the area that I can put compression over. A foam is an awesome dressing that can go underneath an orthotic. It can go underneath a cast. It can go under Coban, Tubigrip, any any of those scenarios. Um, so that would be my number one choice. But that's not to say it's wrong to use Xeroform or Adaptic or another one of the or Telfa, right? Which is another more um, a little bit more absorptive and probably going to trap a little bit more moisture. Um, so the dryness factor is going to help me decide that too. And then again, patient factors, when are they coming back or, you know, how overwhelming is this to change? Are we worried about infection? Do we need to peek under there and look at this more frequently? Those are things that are going to help me decide what to use. You referenced a, like a Vaseline gauze. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, it's actually called Vaseline gauze. And so basically oh, okay. it's an impregnated gauze. It's very similar to uh, Xeroform. It's just a kind of a whitish clear color and it's literally Vaseline or petrolatum that's painted into it. So it's a nonstick, but it's also super important to remember that things like Vaseline gauze and 
Xeroform can dry out. So oftentimes, if you've got somebody who's been put in one of those products, Xeroform is most common at a, as a post-operative, immediately coming out of surgery, the surgeon put them in that, and then you get them maybe four or six days later, and you do that dressing takedown, it can stick, it can adhere because it can dry out. So my favorite way to get it off and not harm the patient without dousing them in water is to actually put a glove on. I always take a kind of a scoop of Aquaphor and put it on paper towel or put it on a you know sterile sheet, uh, Chuck's pad, and then I literally paint the Xeroform onto, I'm sorry, paint the Aquaphor onto the Xeroform on the outside and then the inside of it and just gently paint away that Xeroform to get it to stick, to get it to unstick. I love Aquaphor for that. I love it as a, as a, just a covering for dry wounds. Um, Don Lalonde wrote a paper as early back as I think 2014 uh, for fingertip injuries, just to fill in the space with Coban, with uh, Aquaphor and Coban. Um, so it's, it's a great, great product. It's super simple. Anytime I have colleagues who are going on mission trips to India or Guatemala and they ask me about basic, the most basic wound care, what can we do? I tell them bring Aquaphor, right? It's, it's, it's relatively inexpensive compared to all these other products. And it's, it's basically going to maintain moisture and, and the greasiness. The, it's also great for softening. If you've got super dead, dry necrotic tissue that just needs to be debrided and pulled away, what I'll do is I'll get it on the patient. I'll let it sit. I'll work on something else, range of motion, you know, whatever it is, and then come back and debride either mechanically with my own fingers to see what pulls off or using sharps. Um, but the only time you can't do that is if you are going to use a foam or one of those dressings that has an adherent quality to the intact skin because Aquaform is super greasy and then you won't get that other product to stick. So in those scenarios, if you've got a ton of debris and dead material that needs to be pulled away, saline is appropriate to soften it. Or if it's dead, dry, and, and you're concerned about infection, then you would use a cleanser an antimicrobial cleanser, spray it down to moisten it, and then pull that debris off so you can get something to stick. Um, but otherwise, Aquaphor is my absolute favorite for that. We keep the big tubs of it in the clinic. What about, let's say if we had, you know, someone with an open wound, but there was tons of edema and we had to use like a, put a compression garment on them. What would you do then, then if the wound was open? Yeah. So um, folks with lymphedema deal with this a lot. And, and I always say when I talk to uh, folks in the, in the burn and wound world, I feel lucky that we do an upper extremity because think about lower extremity, edema and a massive wound. How the heck are you going to keep something on there and then keep this swelling out? Um, so for those folks, compression wrapping and all those things are super important. Uh, for the upper extremity, if you've got an open wound with a ton of edema or you're dealing with lymphedema, you're usually dealing with a lot of thin fluid so dressings like a hydrofiber or an alginate are appropriate. And then over that, you can do compression. And those are super appropriate to stay in place for four to seven days. You can use any of those specialty compression wraps for lymphedema, or you can use compression um, stockings, sleeves, gloves, Coban, any of the above. I'm always afraid when I take all these layers off, the edema glove and then the gauze and then the surgery tube on the finger and all that jazz, it's just going to be a white macerated mess. <laughs> For sure. And so that is absolutely appropriate. If you've got, if you take off, you know, let's say you take off an orthotic of a fingertip and Coban was holding that in place and then you had something else like Xeroform on it with gauze. If it's super macerated looking, that's when you say, okay, I've got to move to something different. And your best choices for that would be either an adaptic, like an oil emulsion, 
or a, or something like a contact layer, a Mepitel or a Cutisol contact that is not going to trap as much moisture, that's perforated to allow anything to come out that needs to, um, and that just won't trap as much moisture underneath multiple layers. So a, a contact layer typically does need something to hold it in place. You could use something like a double stockinette or gauze in a little stockinette, and then the orthotic and Coban. So it's just going to be a better option to not trap as much moisture. Okay. Okay. What you touched a little bit about splinting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were always told if you can avoid putting any pr- extra pressure on a wound is ideal. Well, sometimes, you know, you have that volar wound, but they need a, a who, or they have a dorsal wound, but they need a dorsal blocking splint. Sure. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So I truthfully, I'm not super concerned about the pressure. It's more if it's going to be rubbing on it, right? Um, and then if it's moisture, the moisture level, those are the two bigger things I'm more concerned with. Um, so you want to avoid any shear or, in other words, the the, uh, or the dressing in place and then the orthotic rubbing up and down. That can create problems. Um, but oftentimes we are using pressure to hold a dressing in place just with means of gauze or, you know, curlix rolls. Um, so th- that is typically not as much of a concern. It's more the moisture level and making sure it's not staying, it's not moving around. And so for, for that reason, I'm a huge fan under orthotics of either foams or contact layers because of that adhesive quality to the intact skin. So it won't slide and move and it doesn't, the uh, contact layer won't trap as much moisture a foam would be needed if something is exuding. If, if you've got exudate coming out of a wound, you need to absorb it, and a foam is ideal for that. Perfect. Uh, Nora, I think we're ready to go into our clinical pearls or takeaways here. I mean, you've given us so much knowledge here with so much information. I'm sure the listeners, myself, we're probably going to have to be Googling some of these <laughs> products that you've mentioned. Maybe hopefully, that I'm sure there's some YouTube videos on how we can apply them as well too. Um, but what would your like clinical pearls or takeaways be for our listeners, someone listening to this or someone who's new to treating women, what would they, what would they be? Um, I think I definitely mentioned one of them, have Aquaphor in your clinic, right? It is, it is such a uh, versatile product. It can be used as a quote unquote covering or dressing. It can be used for debridement. It can be used for open wounds that have, um, that are clean. It can be used for superficial wounds. It provides moisture. So I think that's probably the number one thing I would say is make sure you have that in your clinic, but just don't use it if you need to put something on that needs to have a little bit of an adhesive quality or to stick. Uh, the other thing I would say, you know, is probably the contact layer. That's my other go-to. That is just a great, think of fingertip injuries, right? We see a ton of fingertip injuries. Um, I have throughout my career. When you've got somebody who is totally afraid of changing changing dressings, who's healing, who's going to have an orthotic and, and some sort of wrap, and you're worried about moisture control, a contact layer can sit in place for four to seven days, and it's just the darn easiest thing to put on and then not have to worry about. So someone who's older or a pediatric case, right? We use them in pediatrics all the time. Who wants to change the dressing of a kid with a fingertip injury, right? Nobody. So it limits the amount of time you have to do that. And the data on those contact layers is, is excellent as far as leaving a, leaving a wound in place and, and letting it heal. Um, and there's definitely a back and forth about that of, you know, do we wash every day and, and get bacteria off or do we not wash so that the pH of the wound doesn't change? Overall, a wound wants to heal. 
your body's trying to heal it. So if you leave it uninterrupted, as long as it's clean and healthy, it should heal. And so I am a huge fan of those things that can stay in place. And so a contact layer in that scenario is, is, is a great option. Those are probably my two biggest pearls for um, what people may not have or what I, I think they should have in a clinic. My other favorite is the, for the contact layer, and I mentioned this a bit, is if you've got folks with mallet injuries and you're trying to splinter cast them for you know eight weeks or however long they need to go, and you're worried about the dorsal DIP skin getting really irritated, pop that contact layer on as a prevention, right? Put it on the skin. If it's starting to get red at all because it's bending against the top layer of the splint, if you're using a dorsal aspect, um, and, and it just sits right under an orthocast or right under a splint, and then you just pop another little square of it on as well. And all of these products, by the way, are available at CVS. They're available online. Momlica, who's the company who makes Mepitel and Mepilex, has a contract with CVS. You can get their products at CVS now. Um, so it is overwhelming. There are so many categories and so many types, but our patients have access to them now. And so that's why I think even if we're not providing them or carrying them in our clinic, we do need to know what they are so we can help people decide which one's appropriate or which one should I get. That yeah. is a great idea for mallets because they are that DIP dorsal Angry skin. DIP skin. So my favorite go-to move. I don't do it every time or I won't do it right away. Uh, but if I see at all that that skin is red or they're really protruding into flexion and you're worried about that skin rubbing, I, I just put a tiny little square of Mepitel. And again, it can stay in place. It's not an open wound. So it can stay in place. A contact layer can stay in place for 10 to 14 days. And I'm usually changing out a caster or a thotic at, at, at that you know 14-day mark anyway, two-week mark anyway. So that's my favorite little, little pearl. Mm, that's great. Yeah, those are some great pearls. I think what we're going to do now is uh, we'll transition here. We're going to have Cassie put you on the hot seat here. Oh, sweet. And she's going to ask you some fun questions the way we like to end the uh, the episode here. So. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. First one. We're kind of running out of questions after 33 episodes <laughs> of this. I'm like, well, we can't keep asking the same questions. So I don't know what, what they are, favorite? so it's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. They're, they're all fun. They're all fun. <laughs> okay. So what is an interesting talent or hobby that you have? Oh, my favorite hobby is mountain biking. Picked it up when I lived in Oregon. Love it. Addicted. Um, I do it now in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, and I am addicted. And I'm usually like scratched up and beat up from it, but it's awesome. Good. Okay. Okay. I'm going to throw a wild card here at you. Sweet. But I'm wondering... What would be your favorite national chain restaurant? Oh. Oh. It's got to be a national chain. National chain. That is a that's a really tough wild card. I can't mm. say that. I can't say that I have one. I am such a fan of going to the local spot. You are, okay. Yes, I am a total like locals local thing. I will say this. I was home in Chicago recently. And I went to a place called Cooper's Hawk. Do you guys know what that is? Do you have them in Wisconsin? We do not know. Okay. So, oh, but my, I have cousins in Milwaukee and they have one. I forget where they it do. is. Okay. I think it is national because my sister lives in Florida and she goes to it. And I went to it in Chicago for a birthday and it was nice. It's kind of like one of those places where they do wine tastings and then you can become a member, but then it's like decent food. So if I had Love to it. pick one, a national chain, I guess I would pick that. I've only been to one once though. But I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of like go local and uh, support the little mom and pop. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I am a traveler as well. So Love that. Mm. 
Okay. All right. Wine or beer? And oh. what's your favorite? Oh, both and both. Um, I was a beer person for a really long time. I lived in Bend, Oregon for seven years who had, gosh, 30 some microbreweries. But I do admit I'm trying to go easy on the glutens lately. So I am becoming, and I did live near Willamette Valley. So, but I am becoming probably more of a wine person now. Um, but at red, the, red or white? Uh, red and rosé. I'm digging the rosé in the summertime you are. lately. I am. Okay. I was just going to ask you if you like sweet or not, but okay. No sweet. I actually don't no, like sweet. sweet. I like a dry, yeah. like a cava rosé. Awesome. Ideal. Awesome. So I was asking my husband to help me with some of these questions. And we just had a disagreement. Toilet paper. Do you put it pulling over or pulling underneath? I actually will correct it and put it over so you pull down. Yeah. Over the top. Over the top. I mean, I correct it. And then when I get stuck cleaning the house, which I really try to avoid, I even put the little point in the toilet paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So people know that the bathroom's clean. Like that's, you know, I want to know my bathroom's clean if I'm using one. I like that. I put, well, I, put I am not uh, an over. I am an under. <laughs> You're the undergrad. I'm an over. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Nora, for your time tonight. It was, it was really, you know, beneficial to hear all about wounds and all the different dressings. Absolutely. It was fun to be here. And I will, um, I'll shoot you that article so you can post that in the notes too that has that algorithm. I think that's a super important thing. And And like you said, Steve, there are ton there is much more information now on google and on um possibly youtube i actually haven't looked into that about these dressings and the in the materials but they are definitely out there so it's worthwhile getting to know and becoming familiar with a bit of an algorithm um so you're comfortable with with what to use yeah for sure and i I hope that our listeners that this kind of tames some of that intimidation a little bit because you know this is this is wonderful thank you so much no worries and just go back to those three questions right go back to necrotic tissue yes or no go back to infection yes or no and then go back to exudate is the wound dry or moist and those three questions those three items will help drive what goes on that wound okay great awesome thanks nora you're super welcome Thanks for listening to the episode with Nora on wound care. We hope you enjoyed it and took away some clinical pearls that you can take back to your own clinics. So we are always open to suggestions and ideas for new episodes and we love your feedback. So feel free to email us at h number two s therapist at newhands.net. And we'll catch you on the next episode where Ann Preto will be joining me. Thank you.